and welcome to the 57th episode of Total Pod Mode, your weekly comedy gaming podcast. My name is Will, and I also go by Hoodafunk, and I'm joined here by my good friend, co-host, and fellow gaming enthusiast, James, aka Mr. Bames. What's going on, you brilliantly bright burros? Coming up with this episode, we've got our weekly regular games catch-up, followed by the weekly gaming news, where we talk the latest offerings from Nintendo, controversial business practice changes by Unity, and potentially the future of Square Enix hanging in the balance. We'll then be rounding off this episode with a return to our weekly games challenge, where this week we'll see how I got on with the challenge set to me last week by James. But before all of that, let's crack on with the socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pop Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pop Mode or one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. Okay, James, so as is tradition, we'll start off this episode with a catch up. What have you been playing this week, as if I need to ask? <laughs> Basically, only Starfield. <laughs> So there's another game that I'll briefly mention right at the end. But um, yeah, for the most part, I've just been playing Starfield this week, man. Uh, got it finished. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Plugging away on your little space voyage. Space nice one, man. So um, yeah, what were your feelings of the main campaign then, considering that uh, that's the thing that you've crunched through this week? The main campaign was very good, I thought. The way that the story sort of evolves... The pacing, oh, yeah, I'll agree. And uh, the character work I thought was really good. You sort of feel things for various characters when various things happen. Mass Effect vibes, for sure. Yeah, that's fair, that's fair. I think I felt a little bit more emotionally attached to my crew in Mass Effect, if I'm being totally honest. Yeah, and if I'm being totally honest, there wasn't anyone I hated quite as much as Ashley. That's a huge bitch! So, yeah, uh, oh, yeah no, I'll for sure. that. I didn't hate any <laughs> of them, I don't think. Mateo's a bit of a square, but... <laughs> Uh, yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's true walter um i started off initially disliking but uh, oh, but he, uh the know. way his character evolves is great though right yeah i ended up getting along with him in the end so yeah from that perspective it was great and i also did all of the guild quests as well and it's exactly the same thing like you do get some great stories and character work in them i wouldn't expect anything less from a bethesda rpg to be fair but i did discover a few more things that aren't necessarily quite so positive nothing again game breaking but one thing that really took my immersion out of the game was um as I mentioned last week, I did a lot of exploring, been on various planets. Mm, yeah. I have actually had the same dungeon twice. And when I say the same dungeon twice, I mean exactly the same items, exactly the same notes and stuff. Oh, deja vu. What did you just say? Nothing, just had a little deja vu. Right, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so the, that procedural generation has, uh, yeah. yeah, and all it's cracked up to be in every situation. No, so for the most part, I've been really impressed by how things have been able to keep random and different when I'm exploring the planets, but my total playtime, I think, is 116 hours or something. Okay, okay. And in that time, I wasn't exploring constantly. Maybe half of that time, maybe even a quarter of that time, I was probably exploring. So call that 30, 35 hours. In 30, 35 hours, I'd have a duplicate dungeon. 
I don't know. Is that good? Yeah, that's. it's kind of one of those cases where you may have just gotten unlucky and it might yeah. have just been one of those kind of fluke situations. This might have been like a bit of a repetition of a Godskin duo type situation <laughs> well, where just like through pure fluke, you ended up bumping into these two two places or followed two paths that brought you to the same type of location. But yeah. you would hope that the chances of that would be extremely small. Maybe you were the unlucky one. But uh, Well, I did explore a hell of a lot of planets, to be fair, because I was trying to get rid of this weather bug. Of course, yeah. <laughs> you did do a lot of planet hopping for sure yeah exactly yeah. If it's, so if it's done on a counter then maybe that's the sort of extenuating circumstance but it was still it took me out a little bit i won't lie for that brief moment well uh let us know in the comments if anyone else has kind of bumped into these duplicate bases as well i'd really like to hear it's not something i've experienced myself but as i made pretty clear in last week's episode i was mainlining the campaign at this point faction missions base building ship building any type of relationship really with my comrades it all went out the window yeah. uh, i was just chasing that main campaign and that's fair enough that's absolutely fair enough. Given uh, given now what you know about uh, New Game Plus, I, I can uh, I can imagine that you'd probably see that there aren't really any negatives to doing the game in that way. No, and none whatsoever. None whatsoever, actually. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't really think of any other negatives that I've experienced. I've just had a thoroughly great time with Starfield all around, and I will be diving into New Game Plus at some point. Probably going to give it a little bit of a break, though. Yeah, man, I, I tend to agree with you in terms of your opinion on the main story. I, I think that it was really set out well. Uh, I enjoyed the missions that you go on. I found it more of an interesting campaign than I had previously playing as some of the other Bethesda titles, as I mentioned last week. I've got to say, I had a better time playing through this main campaign than I did Skyrim's campaign. Certainly more than I did with Fallout 4's campaign. And I think that it's brought it forward in a lot of good ways in terms of the way that you can influence outcomes with speech checks. That feels like it's been advanced a lot more since those games. And I think for me, that's one of the most noticeable advancements in Starfield is that the main campaign is actually really enjoyable, intriguing, and I found myself wanting to push it through. At no point did I find myself dragging myself through and doing it just for the sake of doing it. Yeah. Um, I found this one really enjoyable and I can't say the same for some of the previous titles. I would say that their strengths lie in the side content and I would say that they're good games in terms of what they set out to do, particularly Skyrim. But I think that this one was more of a kind of organic, enjoyable experience for me. If this was a vertical slice of a game and I just kind of had that main campaign mode and obviously, you know, considering that I probably wouldn't be paying the same sort of price for that type of game, I would have still found this enjoyable to run through if it was just a vertical slice of the main campaign is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's fair enough. I, I agree with the sentiment to a degree. I really enjoyed Skyrim's main story. But what I will say is the side stuff's really excellent as well. So you've barely touched any of that when you'll play through. You've got a huge amount of good fun to have with it. Yeah, yeah. That, that's something that I sort of took for granted was in good hands. I would have been very surprised to find out that the side content was quite bland and nothing to really do. And I'm very much looking forward to getting into that on this New Game Plus run that I'll be doing shortly. I'll probably give New Game Plus a miss for the time being. I, I will be playing it very soon, though, I imagine. I'm already getting the little twang to play again. But the reason I won't is actually for the second game I've played this week, if I really want to call it played this week. Because it only came out today. Hot off the presses. And I only got in about 20 minutes before the pod. Um, oh, wow, because, of the, okay. because of the weird release time. It was released at four o'clock today, UK evening time. So, James, tell me, um, what is the crouch button? How do you jump? And uh, what button do you press to interact? As I assume those are the main elements that you've covered so far. No, there's no jump. So. <laughs> All right, okay. Yeah, so easy. Okay, fine. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. 
that wasn't the answer I was expecting. Well, so I know, I'm assuming that Will knows what game it is from that. So for everyone else to be listeners, I've been playing Liza P. Very nice. And, Very uh, nice. You got your early access on. Yeah, I got my early access on. But as I say, 4 p.m. Like what? So weird. It's a bit of an odd choice. But yeah. I mean, hey, I think I waited something like uh, it was like 11 o'clock for Armored Core. I don't know what time you stayed up for Starfield, right? But that seemed like... Uh, well, that was one just after one o'clock. Yeah, I think you said that it actually started around 1.20, right? Yeah, about one <laughs> twenty, And this one was the same. So it was four o'clock, but I didn't actually get to start installing it till half four. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. you're right. Yeah, so you really so, have been squeezing it in. So I literally just did like, not even the full tutorial area, I don't think, but the first bit. So I haven't got too much to say on it, but Dark Souls controls. Good. Okay, that's so, a good thing to hear. So that's Reassuring. a good sign. And so far, from what I've done, it's really, really good. The mechanics feel solid, smooth, no performance issues whatsoever. So far, again, I haven't done a lot. I've probably killed about 20 enemies and one slightly bigger mob. Controls feeling good and responsive. Yep, I need to get used to the timing. This is the case with all new Souls games, but yep, yep, yep. everything feels good in terms of just the very bare bones at the start of the game. You don't get to create a character because you are Pinocchio. But you do sort of get to pick a class. I'd seen a little bit of that in the uh, yeah, in some of the trailer footage. Yeah, so you get to pick between a balanced character, a speedy character, or a strength build powerful character. I've gone for the powerful right. character for the first run. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, big old sword to begin with. Nice, yeah. nice. And there is weapon durability, but you can sharpen it with your arm. It's really cool. Oh, right. Uh, well, like kind of Monster Hunter style sharpening or... Kind of. You have a metal arm, right? Yeah. You have a grind wheel on your arm and it acts like a consumable. So it kind of works like the whetstone, but it's quicker. Does it augment your damage slightly or does it just increase critical hit damage or... I don't know about what? any of that yet. I haven't got that far into right. it. But if your Fine, yeah. weapon durability goes below zero, you obviously do significantly less damage and then you can't repair it with the grindstone. Oh, I see. It's The grindstone kind of acts as a repair kit. Yeah, it's or, infinite uh, yeah. though. Like there's no charges on it as far as I can can see but yeah that's really all i can say about it so far the opening cutscene was nice <laughs> i mean i don't know that's you know this is literally i've not played at all expect to hear more about that next week probably but yeah so that's me for this week man aside from a bit of starfield um what else have you been playing this week so because i completed starfield so early on in the week this week i actually found myself with a lot of free time and i decided to reinvest some of that back into armored course six nice i know you're having a good time before you had a little starfield break has it continued in the same vein it really has Honestly, uh, I, I picked up this campaign around chapter three out of the five available chapters in the game. Progressed that through all the ways through four and five. It seems like three was the, the longest chapter by quite a stretch and then four and five were fairly short in comparison. Although I wouldn't say that it felt rushed towards the end of the game. It didn't feel like you were completely zipping through the missions. You do also have a few amounts of key choices you can make, which will impact on the, the final outcome of the game. What well, in chapter three is this or is that just in general? Just in general, as you move towards the end of the game throughout the game even in some of the earlier chapters you do have the odd decision mission although at that point i'm not sure how much it actually affects the final outcome i think that those might just be kind of more choices so you can impact certain gameplay elements or and learn the mechanic probably as well yeah it kind of puts it in front of you to begin with just so you become aware of it I think that uh, this is the type of game where, again, the storyline, most of it is delivered in kind of faceless codec conversations in between the missions. You do get, you know, various kind of status updates and things happening during the missions, of course, but the majority of the background information and major context for the whole storyline is delivered 
in these phone conversations that you have in between fights. Yeah, typical from soft, not being too heavy-handed on the story, but it is there if you look for it. Yeah, well, that changes quite a bit as the game comes to a conclusion. As long as you're paying attention, there there is a hell of a lot going on. Suddenly, the choices that you're making seem to have much more of an impact, and I'm certain that they'll influence certain bosses that you'll fight towards the end as well. When you say that, do you mean like you'll get a different boss depending on what choice you make sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. And and I mentioned bosses there, and I just want to say that towards the finale of the game, the bosses really step up in terms of their design. They have some absolutely fantastic move sets and things that you have to avoid. The challenge remains there. It's very strong. Although I will say that, um, and as I mentioned on the previous episodes, once you've got that right loadout, and <laughs> there are certain loadouts, which are just game-winning loadouts. Yeah. Guns. Lots of guns. I would describe them as you can kind of take them into pretty much any mission. Once I discovered those, I was really pushing through. And um, and although these were well, these were tough bosses, they took me maybe two or three goes at maximum, some of the final ones. To be fair, that's all very high praise because you were already saying last time we spoke about Armored Core that the mission structure was excellent, the bosses were really good. So for you to say that it's continued to improve as the game's gone on even further, incredibly high praise. Yeah, I'm really struggling to think of reasons to say why this isn't a perfect game. Oh, um, wow. Perfect. Provided that you say that within the, you know, the constraints of what this game is setting out to be. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of the scope of this game and what it includes, I'm really struggling to think of any sort of criticism I can give it whatsoever. So, you know, if that's the bar for a perfect game, then we might be reaching it because um, I can only say good things about this game. And I've only really experienced a slice of it. This is my first playthrough. There is at least two concurrent new game playthroughs that significantly change the campaign based on that. You'll even have certain scenarios where you'll be fighting on a completely different side oh. um, based on those new game pluses. So there's a lot of variation. And I think there's a big argument to be made that you haven't really completed the game until you've actually new game plused it at least once, but maybe even twice. Fair. When you say that, you mean completing to see all of the content, see all the different outcomes, things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's an argument to be made that, you know, that is the kind of the true ending sort of thing. Oh, nice, man. Well, I mean, I'm already tempted to get it. <laughs> I couldn't recommend it more, I've got to say. The game, uh, it really came into its own towards the end, as well as the campaign being really good. A lot more of the characters started to stick out to me. Uh, there's a character that I'm going to give a particular shout out to, Michigan. Uh, he is absolutely hilarious on the battlefield. <laughs> Depending on the choices you make, this guy can either end up being a friendly or a foe. Uh, and I have sort of fought him on both sides at this through various points in the game. And he is absolutely hilarious. He's kind of like a drill sergeant-esque type character that is surrounded by a lot of kind of marine grunts a lot of the time, it sounds like. <laughs> and hearing their radio chatter uh, over the lines is absolutely hilarious. Why don't you start a sewing club together and stitch that damn mouth of yours shut? There's also a, a certain mission where you're working with him and it's highly recommended that you bring along a particular weapon to this fight. And if you decide not to, the dialogue that he gives you for neglecting to bring along the kind of the main weapon that everyone says that you need to do this mission <laughs> is, is really funny as well. Gun 13, let's see that fancy gizmo that Ark was paid the big bucks for. What? You didn't bring it? Gun 13, your ability to ruin my field trips is uncanny! God like damn it! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, overall, uh, I think I've kind of uh, sat and spun on the long dick of Armored Core for, for quite some time now, so I don't really kind of bore the listeners too much uh, with my love for that game. But I will say that uh, if anyone's thinking about picking it up, stop thinking. Get down to your local uh, local game store. Get get onto yourself onto uh, you know various online retailers and uh, pick yourself it up. You won't be disappointed. I feel like that was aimed directly at me. 
Oh no! Well, no, it was a, no. That was a that was a general um, uh, public, public announcement. service announcement. Yeah. yeah, public service announcement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, you know, doubly goes for you, buddy. Just because I yeah. know uh, your tastes in gaming, and I think that this one would really appeal to you uh, when you do get around to playing it. And uh, with that, I think that's our catch up wrapped up for this week. I think it's time that we moved on to the weekly gaming news. So kicking off the news this week, our first article, Unity Technologies announces new and controversial business practice. Unity Technology, for those who aren't aware, are makers of a cross-platform video game engine also known as Unity. The engine has been used by an absolute ton of game titles, including the massively successful Pokemon Go, but also a huge list of popular games such as Rust, Ori and the Blind Forest, Pillars of Eternity, Hollow Knight, Subnautica, and even Beat Saber. Shoutouts. Earlier this week on the 12th of September, Unity announced via blog post on their website a hugely controversial change of business model which was followed up by a post on x.com. The following is a few snippets of the initial Unity blog post follow-up tweet along with some context behind the situation. Today, we, Unity, announced a change to our business model which includes new additions to our subscription plans and the introduction of a runtime fee. We wanted to provide clarifying answers to the top questions most of you are asking. We are introducing a Unity runtime fee that is based upon each time a qualifying game is downloaded by an end user. Yes, this is a price increase, and it will only affect a small subset of current Unity editor users. Once a game passes the revenue and install thresholds, the studio developers would pay a small flat fee for each install. The developers who will be impacted are generally those who have successful games and are generating revenue way above the thresholds we, Unity, outlined in the blog. This means the developers who are still building their business and growing the audience of their games will not pay a fee. This program was designed specifically this way to ensure developers could find more success before the fee takes effect. These announcements have sparked concerns for game developers as well as fans of games themselves, citing concerns around smaller developers who may become victims of piracy being unfairly charged by Unity based on the game installs regardless of actual sales. This isn't the only concern though, and this could also mean that developers could now face additional financial risks in terms of charity bundles and giveaways, and it could also likely affect decisions in terms of proceeding with a free-to-play model, given the likely additional costs of making a game so widely available and therefore installable. All of these things, despite Unity's intentions for these costs to be on the larger developers, will likely end up being passed on to consumers at the end of the day. What's your take on this, James? It all seems a little... I don't know if dodgy is the right word, but there's something about it doesn't sit right. Would you say ill-thought-out? An ill-advised decision where they clearly haven't sat down with any type of developer and had this conversation beforehand? <laughs> yeah, I, th I think that's probably completely fair, because I'm also thinking, like... If someone's cracking the game, that's not a unit sold, but it will still potentially come up as an install. Yes, that's so right. So that just doesn't make sense to me, how that would be fair. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of what seems like just massive oversights in terms of this decision. And I think that these are the type of things that would have been flagged if they had had meetings with developers prior to this. Uh, this decision just seems to have come a little bit out of left field and seems quite poorly thought out. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And uh, I think the Twitter backlash also probably agrees with you. Sorry, the X backlash. Oh, uh, believe me, people on X are absolutely losing their minds over this. And to be fair to them, Unity Technologies are absolutely doing their best to address a lot of these concerns. 
They have since walked back to a lot of the uncertain language that they put in their original blog post, and they've even followed this up with essentially a large Q&A thread to address a lot of the concerns. They've walked back some of the decisions in terms of the fact that if this was to be done not per machine, and it was just on a fresh install every time, that could drastically increase the charges on the developer. I'm kind of one to think that if the developers are experiencing these increased charges, we're likely to just see that in terms of endgame retail prices for games, rather than them taking the actual hit on this. They have laid out some kind of assurance to much smaller developers that still might be keen on using Unity Engine in terms of the fact that they won't be charged before their game hits a certain kind of threshold. But again, it must be a bit of an interesting prospect uh, as someone, even as a small-time developer, I imagine for a lot of these small developers, they certainly wouldn't argue if their games were to suddenly bypass this threshold. And in that sense, they now have to put this additional consideration that if they are going to proceed with the Unity Engine, then down the line, they could be spending a lot more money going with them as opposed to some sort of other uh, easily accessible engine should that arise. And that's got to be a concern for Unity. I don't know how much of a present concern it is for Unity, but they may well be asking themselves some tough questions if they are to go ahead without addressing a lot of the concerns that people have rightfully brought up around this pretty unique change in business practice. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this goes sort of in the coming weeks and how much they backtrack on it. <laughs> it's already started happening, man. I'll be really interested to see where we end up. Agreed. Yeah. 100% agreed there. Okay, let's move on to our second article of the day. In an article from Bloomberg UK, Square Enix Holdings Co. has shed nearly $2 billion of its value since Final Fantasy XVI came out earlier this year to mix reviews. Now investors are probably concerned as to whether the run of one of the game's industry's most known video game production enterprises is coming to an end. The Japanese publisher's share price reached its highest point earlier this year in the days running up to Final Fantasy XVI's release back in June 2023, but it closed on Wednesday the 13th of September at its lowest level since May 2022, dropping around 30% from its peak back in June. That's a big drop. A huge drop. I am never going to financially recover from this. Surprising following uh, the release of one of its most established franchises as well. Uh, obviously, you'd expect and hope that uh, after dropping a title with as much excitement around it as Final Fantasy 16, that that would be a big boost for them. However, it doesn't appear to have uh, performed that magic trick that they needed to turn things around. Do something! Anything! Apart from that initial rise in share price, but... That's hype, not the actual game itself. Not a, like, this is a solid purchase rise. Despite the mixed reviews on the release of Final Fantasy 16, it also, of course, follows the very disappointing performance of other big budget releases, like 2020's live service flop, Marvel's Avengers. Which I genuinely forgotten it existed. And, uh, and you're not wrong to, because support for that will actually end as of this month. Oh, damn. So it's literally going. It's dead. Yes, yeah. it's, it's dead. Wow. In the, it's, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I say dead. It, support will now end, so the support for it is now dead. I mean, you're still welcome to play it, but you ain't getting nothing new. No. The live service aspect is now dead. Also, uh, Forspoken, the debut game from Square Enix's Luminous Production Studio, which launched to lackluster sales, according to the company. And this was a game myself, uh, um, at a glance, looking at a kind of a five-minute trailer initially, I was quite interested by the aesthetic of the game. However, kind of looking more into it, seeing the story elements, it seems like uh, this one was kind of ruined by poor writing. Having an overly verbal protagonist in a game can sometimes put me off, and it certainly did in this instance. From the footage that I'd seen, the, the main protagonist was quite grating 
in some scenes. Yeah, I'd heard it's boring as well. And as you've already sort of alluded to, they're poorly written. And if it's boring, poorly written and grating, that's like the holy trinity for not liking a game for me. And despite the premise and initial promise of seeing some pretty cool graphics, some slightly interesting mobility uh, options as well in terms of the way that you can traverse, and the fact that this game is all based around spells, none of that stopped it from appearing to me once you'd seen a good bit of the gameplay. It's actually just quite a generic looking game. I can believe it. I've not seen much of it because I was staying away because I thought I might get it. Square Enix does seem to have hit a certain level of creative stagnation, with its only two major remaining franchises being Dragon Quest and of course Final Fantasy. In my opinion, this is just a case of telltale signs of a company that has been milking mobile ports, remakes, and not taking enough risks with new IPs for far too long. What's your take on this? I kind of agree with that almost perfectly. The only other thing I'd add to it is that with Final Fantasy VII Remake, I think they lost a lot of goodwill for sort of how they've decided to split it there's pressure for the next installment to be good isn't there there is like, yes but other than that i do agree with you completely i think they've just uh, stagnated a bit need to come up with something to freshen themselves up remind people who they are and how they got there in the first place well james i think that brings us very nicely onto our third article of the day speaking of creatively bankrupt companies known for resting on their laurels of established ips news from nintendo direct september 2023 why you say that Led by Shinya Takahashi, general manager for Nintendo's entertainment, planning and development division, the new Nintendo Direct landed on the 14th of September, and with it came along a decent handful of new titles for Nintendo fans to look forward to. I've made a list of the titles that stuck out to me the most, so without further ado, let's get cracking. So first on the list here, we have Princess Peach Showtime. So Princess Peach <laughs> has got her own dedicated title. And in this game, you appear to save a doomed theater show after some evil nasties have ruined the day. Um, the game features a kind of a, a 3D but mostly fixed camera where you fight your way across various theatre sets. I guess the camera is sort of represents where the audience would be sitting in a theatre scenario. And the gameplay of this game mostly consists around the different outfits that Peach is able to wear. Because of course it does. And, uh, well, I mean, yeah, she is a fan of uh, getting dressed up. And uh, uh, No, this is just the most Nintendo-sounding game I've ever heard in my life. It's brilliant. Princess Peach is going to dress up in loads of outfits and save the theatre. And it's another way to kind of, like, uh, to wedge in uh, some new gameplay mechanics as well. They're always looking for some certain excuse. And uh, a box of outfits is as good a one as any in order oh, yeah. to enable your character to do some new and specialised abilities throughout the game. Yeah, shout out to the raccoon onesie. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's all very established Nintendo stuff yeah. going on love it so one of these outfits actually enables you to become sword fighter peach where you can <laughs> practice your sword play and uh, use that to attack enemies you can also become detective peach and use your detective skills to solve various mysteries around the game observing evidence and sneaking around and you can also get kung fu peach uh who is able to use her martial arts prowess to defeat enemies so all i'm hearing here is metal gear solid peach edition what the hell are you talking about and I think this is probably one to watch as well. To my knowledge, this is the first kind of major title where Peach is the, the sole main character of it. Obviously, I think at certain points accompanied by Toad. However, uh, this one looks quite interesting. Out of the batch of games, this one particularly caught my eye, I've got to say. Yeah, no, I, I can't think of any Peach-only games off the top of my head. It'd be really interesting to see what they do with that character. Moving on to our next game, uh, this is perhaps where some of my bias comes out. The Tomb Raider 1-3 to collection has been remastered and is available for Nintendo Switch as of February 2024. 
this is something that uh, you know slightly excites me. I think having the option of playing a game that I'm very nostalgic towards on the Nintendo Switch is something that certainly appeals to me. James, do you have any experience with playing any of the early Tomb Raider titles? Uh, I've done the mansion. I've locked. Uh, is it Alfred? His name or is that Batman? I, but I've locked him in the freezer. <laughs> I think we all did. And I have done like maybe one or two missions in it, but I never owned a PlayStation back in the day, so Fine. I was only like sort of playing it around mates' house. So I don't have the same nostalgia for this, but I respect it. And to be fair, I imagine. It's the sort of game that would run beautifully on the switch and that's not as much of a backhanded compliment as i meant it to sound (laughs) (laughs) i'll tell you what james it better run well on the switch because uh based on what i'm just about to read here this is one of those games where they've taken the master chief collection or at least the halo anniversary collection approach to this game where you're able to very quickly toggle between the old school and the new school graphics this is very much a retexture model swap but otherwise everything else remains very much the same oh i love that in um, the halo games although what i will say is that does mean that the controls and the way that the game will play will be exactly the same as Tomb Raider 1 to 3 which uh, for their time were impressive games uh, there was a lot of technical controls going on there I think in comparison to a lot of more simple platformer and action games however for modern day standards they didn't control great and they were actually quite clunky in terms of the way that you needed to navigate and platform the levels something that fans of the previous games will be well used to navigating however i don't think this one's going to generate much appeal for uh, fans that are looking to get into and play some of the earlier tomb raider titles i think all the issues with the controls and the gameplay uh, are still going to be very much present in this and unlike the first halo these games had a lot more room to grow uh, initially <laughs> to make them like very you know tight games yeah. uh, you're so, being very yeah. kind yeah <laughs> yeah i'm trying not to sh- on these games that i you know that i do like a lot i would agree with you in the sense that they got it right for the time like it was very impressive back then but as you've said modern standards it doesn't stop me from being excited about it man i think that uh yeah any excuse to pick up these games again and see them in a different light i'm all for it Next on the list, something that took my eye, and this is again, perhaps a little bit of a a bias coming from me, but this is a Defense of the Ancients Dota slash League of Legends combat style battle royale game, uh, which includes 15 unique mythological inspired heroes to play, and you have to be the last team standing in the surrounding collapsing terrain. The title I'm of course referring to is Battle Crush. So this is a game that uh, looked very interesting to me. I'm a, a fan of looking from afar at Dota and League of Legends. I have kind of dabbled in those games myself. I find that the mechanics of them are very solid. I find them fun games to play. I'm just horribly bad at them. Yeah, and apparently a very toxic community. That's that's a lot of the reason. I, I found myself actually getting kind of like half an hour to an hour timeouts just for being bad at the game. Oh wow! Uh, so yeah, if you jump into ranked mode in that game, uh, it's it's not it's it's a rough experience uh, for for inexperienced players. It's a Shark Tank. But in terms of the mechanics of this game, it was hard to get a real feel for it. It's obviously been simplified uh, considerably to actually work on a Switch in terms of the amount of moves that you can do. Perhaps in terms of the items, I would probably put this more akin to something like the Pokemon kind of League of Legends uh, ripoff game that they did. It, the name escapes me at the moment. Um, but I think that it will probably be similar to that in terms of the way that it plays out. But I do like the aspect of a Battle Royale included in there. That kind of adds a new and interesting element to me. And it looks like you can play this as team-based as well. So uh, yeah, be interesting to see how these different characters are able to interact and combine and synergize their powers. Yeah, and I'm curious to see how that style of MOBA slash Battle Royale is going to work. That, that could be really cool yeah it's an interesting take and one that's uh unique to me at least 
Next up on the list is F099. Oh yeah. Uh, and this one really took me by surprise. I was expecting an F0 remake. I thought they were gonna, much like a lot of the games that were uh, trialed over at the Nintendo Direct, I thought this was gonna be a straight up remake. Not at all, this is another Battle Royale game. It's a Battle Royale, not the racing game. So this takes all of the gameplay of your favorite and familiar F0 racing series However, now you will have 99 players all racing along the same track, and every time that you bump into someone or bump into one of the sides of the arena, you'll lose your health. Your cars will slowly be destroyed as you lose your energy, or you crash into enough cars so that you damage your vehicle enough. The way that you replenish energy for people who aren't familiar with the series is that typically around the area where each time you lap the course, there's a pad that you can pull into and regain some of that energy. So this is really going to be a last man standing who can remain the fastest, remain the healthiest and finally make it to the end damn i'm I call me intrigued man like that sounds cool love f-zero back in the day I, I can't wait to see more of this it looks exactly like it's classic f-zero um they have added in some modern day tweaks for instance there is a system where you can unlock aesthetics for your vehicle so you can color them up and change them slightly nice. just to make it look like everyone's vehicle around the stage is you know unique looking car cool, um, i think yeah. that's a nice touch but for the most part this art style will look exactly familiar to how you played this on the snes hell yeah interestingly um the only time i played f-zero because i didn't have a snes i had a nes i had f-zero on the game boy advance so i had the port of it it was the same game yeah yeah yeah, yeah i didn't play much of it because i never owned it but i borrowed it good floaty before wipeout wipeout game yeah space racing yeah so yeah, uh, no, like you, man, I agree with you. I'm looking forward to uh, to checking this one out as well. And we can indeed do that as active Nintendo online users. Uh, so I may well stick this one on after the pod, I think. Not bad show. Coming up next on our list of games is Paper Mario Thousand Year Door Remake, which was, of course, originally a 2004 GameCube title. Features our hero Mario taking on a drawing-based art style, turn-based battle system with an emphasis on timing of moves. Fans of the sequel to Paper Mario will be extremely excited to see that one of their favourite games is being remade in all new shiny Nintendo Switch graphics. And uh, I think this is, uh, is one really in a long list of remakes that got announced as part of this Nintendo Direct, but for me this one stuck out particularly just because I'm aware of the prestige that people have for Paper Mario. Yeah, and again, it should run really smooth on the Switch. It's will be a nice one for the nostalgia banks, so can't blame them at all for this one. Never played Paper Mario, but I have a lot of respect for it as I do the whole Mario franchise. And speaking of the Mario franchise, we've also got another Mario remake on the way with Super Mario RPG Remake, a title that was originally made with contributions by Square Enix made back on the SNES back in 1996. The Super Mario RPG title will release sometime in 2024. And uh, the reason why I felt to include this one on the list is because Super Mario RPG, for me, again, it stuck out as quite an interesting title. But I think that this one is definitely one to watch as well, and people who missed it all that way back in 1996 will finally have an opportunity to play it in uh, modern-day graphics, and most likely with some updated gameplay mechanics as well. One would hope if it's a complete remake rather than a remaster. Cool, nice to see it. I don't think I played this one. Very interested to see how this one goes. So aside from those headline games, uh, there's a couple ones that I wanted to give a quick shout-out to. We have another remake, uh, this time the Mario vs. Donkey Kong remake, which was a side-scrolling puzzler Game Boy Advance title. Uh, this one coming out in February 2024. We also have Luigi's Mansion 2 HD remake, which was originally a 2013 3DS title, and a couple of new games as well. We have Detective Pikachu Returns coming out in October 2023. WarioWare Move It, which has over 200 micro games, is also coming out, as well as a bunch more Mario Kart 8 DLC, more characters, and race courses announced. 
a lot to look forward to from Nintendo then in the coming months. And obviously there's like a, you know, like a litany of like a thousand obscure Japanese RPGs that I failed to mention on this list as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for more details, uh, go ahead and check this list out on YouTube. So James, I think that's wrapped up for the news this week. It's time to move on to the long-awaited... A Games Challenge! <laughs> So James, this week you set me the task of playing Dark Souls 1 Remastered Edition, defeating the Asylum Demon and the Taurus Demon using no items, no weapons, or any equipment other than my solitary Estus Flask. I certainly did. And Will, I'm curious to know, how did you get on, man? Well, James, I'm gonna save you as any suspense and give you the answer now. I'm very pleased to say I did complete the game's challenge this week. The crowd goes wild. And the reason why I kind of wanted to get that out of the way is because my path uh, to getting this achievement in certain places was was quite long. Uh, in other senses, it, it wasn't quite long at all. I would say that in total time for me to actually complete this challenge, I actually did this relatively early on in the week. I actually had this one completed by the end of last weekend. So I was very pleased in terms of the amount of time that it took me to complete. However, that doesn't say anything in terms of uh, the amount of effort that this did require. I will say that this was still absolutely a challenging challenge. One that required a lot of concentration and a lot of patience and by no means uh, did I find this one a cinch. It was more just a case of I figured this is a challenge of momentum as well. I didn't want to kind of be chipping away at this challenge. I figured that the best way to do this is to absolutely commit myself and thrash my way through it fully focused and kind of keeping building on the previous experience rather than squirrel gaming a bit here and there, losing all of the stuff that I'd learned and then coming back to it a couple of days later. So I really kind of went all out last weekend trying to complete this one. Yeah, and that was meant to be the idea of the challenge, you see. It was more of a mental challenge, as I said, because for those that aren't familiar with the Dark Souls series, these are basically the first two bosses you're going to run into. You could yes. take a path and run into the catacombs, technically, but these are most likely the first two bosses you run into. Yeah. And they're not necessarily the toughest bosses, but with the limitations put in place you have to really concentrate and learn their moves. So you basically have to do them no hit. For both of these fights, uh, if you made a mistake, you had pretty much no option but to perfectly dodge the next attack and heal. Otherwise, it was game over. So that was where, um, as you rightly identified, a lot of the challenge came in. So I'm just going to uh, kind of provide people with a little bit of a context. Uh, so the first boss, as you mentioned there, is the Asylum Demon. It basically appears within the tutorial section of Dark Souls just before you kind of depart into the main game proper. Initially in this game, and what the game expects you to do uh, at that point is to actually trigger the Asylum Demon to then immediately run away from it and resume your way through the actual tutorial up until the point you pick up a couple of weapons, arm yourself, and then you're able to come back and defeat it. And get your Estus, crucially. Absolutely, yeah. However, in my playthrough, the only thing I could do was get the Estus before triggering this boss fight. So just a few stats about the Asylum Demon. The Asylum Demon kind of looks like a large, overweight gargoyle with bat-like wings. Uh, it's got a pretty monstrous face with massive teeth and fangs. Greatest! And its wings are too small for its body as well. Yeah, it definitely isn't capable of real true flight, but it can do an attack where it sort of lifts itself off the ground, flaps its wings a little bit, is able to hover briefly before doing a kind of butt stomp into the ground. That's exactly what it does. To make matters worse, this enemy, unlike myself, also has armed itself with a weapon. It has a large sort of mace hammer type weapon, which it uses to good effect, slamming it around on the ground. All of these attacks you can dodge by sort of staying quite close to the enemy. And that seems 
to be the main kind of technique was baiting it to do certain kinds of attacks by hovering around its backside and doing damage there. Gotta eat the booty like groceries. And just for context, how much damage were you doing to this with a single punch? So I was doing one damage per punch to this boss, nice. and this boss has 825 health if there that helps kind of give anyone an indication. So 825 <laughs> punches later, you finally defeat it. But that probably, I want to say, took me within the realms of about 10 to 15 to maybe even 20 minutes oh, yeah. um, in terms of my clean run punching away at it. Different attacks obviously enable you to get up to, I think, a maximum of about five punches in on the thing. That's probably what your stamina bar is limited to at that point as well, because you can't level up either. Yeah, that's right. So that's kind of the other thing as well, is a lot of the time you're probably only getting two to three punches in even with perfectly timed dodges and attack windows and things like that and then the other rate limiting factor of course being that you do a certain amount of punches and then suddenly you can't dodge so a lot of the time yeah. you'll be restricted to holding back on a punch just to ensure that you can dodge the incoming blow keeps your mind thinking it does. It kind of became uh, formulaic towards the end and just a mathematical equation of if he does this attack, then I can move in behind him and get five hits and still do a dodge because I have time to recover a bit of stamina. If he does this attack, then I'm only able to get two hits. Do not get greedy. The moment you get greedy, you get hit. The moment you get hit, yeah. you panic. The moment you panic, you get hit again and it's game over. You've got to keep those emotions in check as well. The last thing you Absolutely. want is an adrenaline rush when you're trying to concentrate. And I found that a big tactic during these boss fights was to completely ignore their health bar as much as possible possible not even try and keep it in peripheral vision because yeah. as you say there you get that adrenaline spike when you suddenly realize that he's actually got maybe a few more hits in him and unfortunately that cost me two deaths i Ooh. think was just adrenaline spikes alone getting him down to next to no health and as you can imagine you know after sort of 10 15 20 minutes of uh, of working that health bar down and not really having any issues losing it at the last second is particularly heartbreaking yeah it's brutal. I'm pleased to say, though, that uh, it didn't take me a great deal of time in order to defeat the first boss. As I mentioned last week, this was uh, one that I'd actually previously defeated. However, I did use the broken sword hilt in that fight, so the fight didn't last as quite as long as it did this time round. But I did kind of get into that flow of being able to perfectly dodge most of his attacks and figure out the appropriate windows to do my own. Yeah, and just for context to our listeners, uh, I didn't know that when I set this challenge. What was that, sorry? That you'd already done it. So that was just a lucky sort of happy accident for Will. Yes, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. So because of all that, Will, it sounds to me like you didn't have too much trouble with Asylum Demon other than the time sink, really. That's absolutely right. I, I managed to get that one done in the early hours of Saturday morning and emboldened by my success after defeating the Undead Asylum, I then worked my way to Firelink Shrine. Emboldened by the flame of ambition. So uh, at this point, once you arrive in Firelink Shrine, there's a few areas that you need to pass through in order to work your way to the Taurus Demon. Given the fact that I could basically do no damage even to the regular enemies in the game, I wasn't really able to level up, apart from the 3,000 or so experience that you get from the Asylum Demon. And what did you put it in, just out of interest? I'm imagining health and stamina. <laughs> just straight up health. Just all health. Because two points in stamina just doesn't really... <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It doesn't enable anything. Like, at least those two points in health, I might just skim an attack, but two points in stamina isn't enough to give me an additional roll or an additional punch or anything yeah. it's uh so and you weren't tempted by strength no because again <laughs> it was like what is is it really going to yeah. actually take me over that threshold of doing that one extra bit of damage or is it just going to stay on the same number 
so I, yeah, so I held off from that as well. Again, as you've rightly identified and said from the very beginning of this, this is a, a game of patience and uh, and timing and things like that. So uh, being able to do minuscule amounts of damage on it really wasn't the way to do this. This was about getting the boss fight down to a perfect T rather than having an ability to do it slightly quicker. Whether I do it in 15 minutes or I do it in 20 minutes, it's whether or not I have the skill to do it rather than how quickly I can. Yeah, exactly that. So what I will say is, unlike the Asylum Demon, when I did finally get to the Taurus Demon, he gave me a lot more trouble. And you fight this guy on a sort of semi-destroyed castle exterior wall. You access that by walking your way up a set of stairs to a turret and crossing through a fog gate, at which point you step out onto the castle wall. And at that point, the Taurus demon isn't actually there. He's currently hiding behind one of the parapets. As you get roughly two thirds of the way across the bridge, the Taurus demon then descends down on you and begins to chase you. And not only that, but there's also a couple of pesky skeletons on a tower behind you who normally you kill straight away, but obviously with your limitations, Will, they were probably in action for this fight as well. Adding that extra layer of thing to think about in a very, very thin and compact arena, might I add. Very thin, very compact arena. And as you say, those pesky archers really were quite a concern in this game. And this was the part of the challenge where where I would say that I had the most issue. So as I was working my way through this, um, I came up and devised several different ways of doing this. Some worked, some didn't, but I'll give a quick rundown of them now. So one of my first tactics was thinking, okay, I really need to get rid of these pesky archers. Uh, What do I do about them? So initially, my answer to that was to travel up and repeatedly try and backstab them until I actually got the kill. What it turns out is that you actually need to backstab them like over 10 times to actually get the kill. And considering that my main objective was to kill the boss, backstabbing enemies up to 20 times before I can even start the boss fight, which I was probably going to lose because I hadn't had an opportunity to work my way up to that point, would have been absolutely maddening. Uh, So I very quickly decided that that wasn't the best course of action. However, it did lead me to remember that there is a cheese for this boss fight where you're able to climb up to the top in a normal playthrough. You would kill the two pesky archers, wait for the Taurus demon to come to the top, at which point you can plunge down onto his head in a similar fashion to how you can also do an aerial attack on the asylum demon in your typical playthrough of this game. However... If you take your time and you stand at the top of the parapet, the Taurus demon will stare up at you and eventually jump up there and try and attack you. Yeah. Now, at that point, if you get up on top of that parapet, you can lure him up there and he will actually kill the two skeletons that are up there just by attacking them. So that was one way of dealing with the skeletons. However, in that situation, you've got to remain dodging the skeletons while they're shooting you, deal with the Taurus demon, as well as compensate for the fact that uh, he's also got his own set of heavy attacks that you'll be needing to avoid. And he's blocking the only exit from the tower. Yes, exactly. So again, uh, another flawed playthrough, another flawed run, and one that I learned from. Eventually, I discovered that actually, if you climb up the ladder to get to the two archers... After activating the Taurus Demon, if you go down maybe like one or two rungs from the very top, he looks up and pretends to almost see you at the top of the parapet. And if you get to exactly the right point, you can get a balance between not aggroing the archers enough so that they'll pull out their swords and pursue you, so they'll just stay there firing arrows into the wall trying to get you, and the Taurus Demon will think that you're up at the top of the parapet. So he actually jumps up, mauls the two archers, and then at that point you can either climb down the ladder or climb up the ladder depending on whatever your next 
next method of approach is. Which I would imagine would be climbing down the ladder. You don't want to be yeah, up there. Yeah, typically, you don't want to be up top. <laughs> no, that was, uh, that was something I, I also learned pretty quickly. <laughs> I was hoping that up top on that parapet, because it's a circular arena, I was really hoping that that would actually give me the space that I needed, because as you oh, mentioned, yeah. the other choice is a bridge, which is very narrow, and your main choice is a dodge towards, which is optimal, dodge yeah. away, which is usually when you're only panicking and is a mistake, yeah. and other than that, you're not getting away from him any other way. No. So, uh, after finally coming to the conclusion that the optimal place to fight him was actually at the bottom of the ladder, I finally gave up on my idea of trying to take out the archers first and instead used the fact that the closer part of the stage towards the parapet where the archers are staying is actually a bit of a blind spot for them, so they can't shoot you there. Unfortunately, what this does is it limits the bridge even further yeah. and the area that you've got to play around with attacks is absolutely tiny. I found with this boss, much like the Asylum Demon, he has a lot of slow, long, heavy attacks, which are, in all fairness, pretty easy to avoid, provided that you learn the timings. However, he also has several moves, which are very easy to predict, but also have a lingering AoE after he's done the attack. Now, those are really difficult to avoid in a situation where you're close to the enemy, and even if you do manage to perfectly dodge through the attack and get the iframes to avoid the attack, you'll still be hit by the lingering damage of the rest of the attack, the residual damaging hitbox. That's interesting. Very tough to get around that. And the way to avoid a lot of those attacks is typically to create a bit of space and then let him do the attack and then dive through his legs at the last minute. Yeah. But again, it's difficult to create that space when the moment you do that, you start getting peppered by archers. So this was where another one of my problems of the run came in, where I make the choice between having a real hard time fighting the demon in a real tight space or having a bit more of an open space and being constantly vigilant of the arrows that are peppered in my direction. Which is a tough choice, I would imagine. This led to my first kind of interesting discovery of the game number one being that there is a lowered wall by that parapet and at one point for a sheer fluke in the game he knocked me down although my character's health bar wasn't down i kind of slid across the ground and flew off the parapet at right. which point I got the game over screen but before i did so he actually followed me off the parapet and killed himself and i'm thinking <laughs> I did discuss this exact predicament with James off pod last week. What do I do if the boss kills himself? Because it's never happened to me in a legitimate run, but I could foresee, and I, I did foresee it accurately, it turns out, that because of the nature of this run and because of the fact that I was running around dodging attacks for 20 minutes and he does hop around and he actually does have a specific move where he just does a back step, there was a quite a large risk of this happening. Also based on the fact that the lower wall is also right next to the parapet, meaning that he had a much greater likelihood of jumping off himself just due to the fact that my battle arena was so limited. So the boss throws himself off after he defeats me. It comes up saying victory achieved, and I think it wasn't how I wanted to win, but I got it. So I think at that point, do you know what? I'm going to flex on James a little bit. <laughs> I'm not sure. Just... Can I just point out? I'm not sure how I feel about that, given that he'd killed you first. Well, I, I mean, I, I, you have to acknowledge the uh, the law of the undead. Um, that Taurus demon doesn't have unlimited lives, unlike me, an undead that is able to. Uh... Sure, I was defeated in that life, but uh, you know, due to my undead powers, I'm able to come back, making me the victor. Don't yeah. worry, James, your fears are about to be alleviated because I figured I'm going to go flex on James. I'm going to go back to that point again, push on through. Turns out when I get back, the boss is still there. So this is something where for the second time in this run, I experienced something I've never done before in a Dark Souls run. I have had it where a boss has killed themselves and you've got on the kind of game over screen as well as the victory achieved at the same time. If you happen to kind of get a boss on a residual damage, a bit of a fluke after you've been killed. However, this was the first time that those parameters had been met. But when I went back, he was still alive. Yeah, that's that's weird. Yeah. 
That's yeah. weird. So at that point, with everything that I had learned so far in my head, I went to go do the run again. This time, the same thing happened <laughs> under different circumstances. So this time, rather than him knocking me off with health still remaining and then following me off, this time he straight up did that backwards jump right to the end of the ledge to the point where his model had about one foot on the ledge. At that point, I backed away thinking... <sighs> Like, not again. I, like, I do want to do this legitimately. <laughs> but that then baited him into doing another final long sweep across. And before he does that, he takes a minor step backwards again. So he did actually for the second time. Oh no, I hope I don't fall. And these weren't concurrent attempts, I will say. It was kind of like one of those ones where I thought I'd beaten it. It didn't happen. So I played it a few more times. And then we finally had this outcome of he did actually basically that time just step off of his own volition. And again, I'm just thinking, God damn it. I'm trying my best, oh, James. <laughs> I, I really want to reassure you here that- uh, well, that, one's, that one's more legitimate because he didn't kill you first. <laughs> no, so I'm not, I'm not yeah, as, that yeah. one, you've, that's, you've already saved it for me. Well, also, but it I sounds mean, like there's more. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I mean, the, the legitimacy of the first one was overruled by the fact that I didn't actually defeat him. Even though I got the victory achieved, even though yeah. the fact that his health bar went to zero, he was still there. He was still when there, I came exactly. Back. Yeah. That's, that's so, the oddest yeah. thing you've said yeah. so far. Like, I, I'm staggered by that. Do you know, I'm really relieved that I didn't have to do this weird thing where I just kind of was like dusting my hands, thinking, oh, challenge over, I'm done now. <laughs> and then I, it turns out that like later on, after telling you that I completed the challenge, that I didn't go back and. You know, it was only through the fact that I wanted to flex a little that I discovered that I actually hadn't defeated him. So if I would have just dusted my hands and said game over in that minute, I would have been I would have been lying yeah. uh, when I told you this week that I completed the challenge. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, that I kept going with that. Yeah. Anyway, after the second time that it happened um, and he was legitimately gone that time because he didn't kill me, I thought, right. I'm going to restart the game again. I'm going to do this as a legitimate challenge in the purposes of being completely honest, even though I would say that I've met the parameters of the challenge you have already that on second the second one, run. For sure, yeah. So I restarted the game again, kept the same level, kept the same everything. I did use my starting weapon to kill the Asylum Demon because I just didn't want to sit through 20 minutes of doing something that I've already legitimately done. I got to the boss and then I promptly unequipped everything. I was at exactly the same level and I'm pleased to say that after God knows how many attempts, even some successful attempts, I did finally, finally manage to defeat the motherfucking Taurus Demon eventually what i will say is though is unlike the asylum demon uh, i was doing two damage per hit but he does have a hp of 1215 so this was still 600 successful hits that i needed to get on him roughly give or take and he can do a lot more damage to you which adds the danger element as well much exactly. thinner arena so yeah the arena is a lot more tight he does more damage and i found his attacks more difficult to avoid just because of some of the residual effects of some of his attacks that he yeah. has and he's got long range as well yes yeah Absolutely. That long range kind of run slam he does. If you're at the right thing, it's very easy to dodge. You just roll through his legs. But when you're in a tight situation like that, the residual damage stops you from being able to do that. You still take minor chip damage after you've dodged. Yeah, and also because you've got zero poise yes. and you can't eat through it, it will just stagger you. It's tough. Tough boss fight, but I I'm pleased to say that I did actually, after kind of speed running it to him again, I finally managed to legitimately beat him because after all those combined attempts, I did become very good at uh, legitimately dodging and kind of learned everything I needed to know. Um, so not only did I complete this challenge once, James, I, I think I can argue that I completed it once and a half, maybe even twice. <laughs> yeah, one and a half. I'll give you that. That's fair. Before I congratulate you fully, because I'm genuinely very impressed. It's a good, good effort. Um, the only other question I have on it is uh, when you did lose to Taurus Demon, 
Was the run back stressful at all? I'm very glad that you asked me this, James. Actually, honestly, the run to the Taurus Demon, even through one dead berg, was quite difficult. You kind of immediately leave a cell and you're faced by a couple of archers. You have to run along a bridge that's being pelted by flaming oil canisters into a room that is an absolute gangbang of different undead, including (laughs) one of them that's armed with a sword and has faster, heavier attacks than you're probably used to regularly dealing with at that point in the game if you're a newcomer. Uh, And that really is kind of like a big choke point in the game. Once you are able to get through that room, you then need to run through some more houses, past a few more undead, who have a very strong habit of doing this massively large lunging attack that actually tracks yeah. you while they're in midair, and yeah. it covers a load of ground. There's also a crossbow up in the tower that you need to watch out for, shooting you in the back. Yep. And if you take a wrong turning, there's also a black knight that you don't want to run into with no equipment. <laughs> yeah, thankfully I didn't uh, didn't bump into him because I knew the game well enough. But I did find that that archer was pinging me, um, because there's also a point later on where you come across two shielded guys with a spear and another shielded guy with a sword i got so familiar with those undead that i actually started to give them names oh wow (laughs) james you'll be familiar with this and listeners who are familiar with the dark souls series but there is uh, a certain enemy who's very conniving and at the start of that run as you just go up a pair of stairs just about to get to the parapet that you need to ascend to the boss arena he kicks a flaming barrel down the stairs towards you which you need to avoid before pressing on yeah however um given as i mentioned earlier you're an undead and every time you die you kind of restart the universe again once that barrel has been kicked it will never respawn so at that point it's just an enemy standing on the stairs as well which uh, for this point onwards i'll go ahead and call henry um henry was very accommodating on uh on runs post the initial trap that he did um he would very casually stand to the side each time unlike all of his colleagues uh who were trying to like you know maliciously stab and track me down he would always just kind of calmly stand to the side as i ascended the stairs really really appreciated that henry yeah honestly shout out to henry yeah like that was yeah honestly he gave me that hope i think naming naming the undead that i passed each time you know saying good morning to them as i as i worked my way towards the uh the tourist demon it really did help Oh, fair. Well, he always does a jump attack down the stairs at me. Does it? Well, without fail. Yeah. You know, I just, uh, I don't know what to say there. But I'm normally wearing clothes and have weapons, to be fair. Maybe he has sympathy for those that are unarmed. He may have just felt bad for me. Yeah, I look like a, a person that's just completely lost in that world. Honestly, he probably thought that my day couldn't get much worse than inadvertently heading towards a Taurus demon. So uh, he probably just let me yeah. figure that one out on my own. And to be fair, you killed it, but it didn't die. That's never happened before in Dark Souls that I'm aware of. So maybe it was just like, <laughs> damn, man, like you just can't win. <laughs> yeah, I've just yeah. got ultimate sympathy for you. You're a necromancer and you didn't even know it. At that point, yeah, I mean, what is there more to lose? But uh, yeah, so I mean, there were small things that I had to do like that, such as naming random enemies, uh, just to keep myself going, to keep myself motivated. Yeah. Uh, that run to the Taurus Demon, it, it did get arduous after the sort of, you know, fifth or so attempt at doing it whilst I was still figuring out just how the hell to avoid the archers that are peppering oh, yeah. you, the best places on the bridge to stand, uh, as well as his attack patterns, because unlike the Asylum Demon that I got with relative ease, this guy's attacks, I was slightly familiar with them, but not not as familiar in terms of remembering where all the iframes were. And I would also argue that certain of his attacks much harder to uh, to avoid close up. Oh yeah, 100%. And the other thing is, you've got to bear in mind that typically you're beating him in about three hits, like if you're playing like a normal playthrough. Yeah, right. So yeah. you might not see his full moveset sometimes and you've now seen all of it and some 
Well, man, I've got to say congratulations. I'm very impressed with you. I, I, I thought you might do it. Thank you very but, much. Um, I'm pleased that you didn't struggle too much with the asylum demon because it sounds like you had quite an arduous time with the Taurus demon, which is the way around I thought it would go. Oh, yeah. The archers for me were the sort of main killer in that. If the archers aren't there, I think Taurus demon is probably not half as bad. But having to think about the archers is a, an extra little mean consideration there. I, I should say that when I actually, on my completing run, I did use the strategy that I'd picked up earlier and then since given up on where you kind of lure him to kill the two archers just by hanging around one of the top rungs of the ladder yeah at that point i was familiar enough with his move set that adding that extra kind of minute or so to each attempt just to get those out of the way i was surviving long enough that that wasn't yeah. really a consideration as much as it was when i was only surviving for two or three minutes at a time and you only had five estus when you were doing this as well so you really did have to be very on point so fair play man you survived the challenge that i'd set I'm very impressed. Well done. One all. One all. We have drawn equal. Yeah, no pulling away this week. So James, uh, with the scores settled for this week, I think it's time that I move on to the challenge that I'd like to set you for this week. Need to get my, my nose ahead again. Defend my crown that I'm still yet to get. <laughs> so James, your challenge this week... <laughs> ...is to go ahead and play Minecraft. Ooh, bit of building. Well, actually, no, no. We're taking the building and the crafting out of Minecraft this week. And oh, also, so I'm just playing mine. Yeah, I was just about to say, we're also, you know, given the basis of this challenge, I'm not sure whether you're actually doing very much mining either, <laughs> to be honest oh, with you. Oh, wow. <laughs> You're playing blank. You're playing blank. Uh, well, I mean, maybe we can yeah. give it a new title based on the parameters for this challenge. So, James, it's not only just to play Minecraft this week. I'm sure you'll be disappointed to figure out. I, I didn't set a challenge quite that easy. Your challenge this week is to beg, borrow, loot, or steal four pieces of armor or clothing. Okay. Not just any four pieces, however. Each of the equipment slots, which are your helmet, torso, legs, and feet, must be filled with a piece of gear. Oh. None of this gear needs to be matching. For instance, you don't need to have a full set of lever armor. You can mix and match with the various different materials available to you. Okay. However... None of this gear, as I mentioned before, can be crafted. However, outside of crafting, all of it can be obtained by pretty much whatever method you see fit. Okay. You have one week. Awesome, awesome. This will be an interesting one. I've got, I've got some ideas. But uh, yeah, I'll see how we get on. I'm not massively familiar with Minecraft, so this will be fun. And uh, with this one, I'm not putting in the constraint of not being able to use the internet. You are absolutely able to use the internet in this challenge. Uh, a lot of this will come down to what seed you end up landing on. Um, there is a couple of additional uh, sort of parameters in there that I haven't mentioned. I'll quickly just go ahead and say, obviously it goes without saying, no creative mode, uh, no cheats in the regular mode. You can kind of enable cheats that creative mode has in the regular mode. It's still not classed as creative mode, but say, for instance, no flying, um, which is classed as a cheat in the mode. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that this is a one that is kind of, there's an element of luck here in terms of you could find um, some very good biomes, some very good areas. You could land next to an area which is ripe with your first one or two armor pieces even. <laughs> I suspect that the challenge may well be that once you've got three out of four, you may run across more armor pieces in the game. However, they're likely to be duplicates of whichever three slots you've already got equipped. It will be nailing down and finding that last helmet or that last set of boots or something like that. That I suspect is where the challenge will really start to kick in. Fair. Well, I look forward to potentially the grind by the sounds of it. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, getting involved, seeing what I can do, man. Nice one, man. 
Okay, buddy, uh, with your challenge set for the week, I think it's time that we brought the show to a close. But before we do so, one final run through of the socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content for our playthrough stream highlights as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pod Mode, or one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And with that said, James, just a final request to our listeners, please do go ahead and subscribe to us on our various social media platforms, pop us a review over on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other podcast listening platforms. We really do appreciate the support and engagement that we've received so far. Uh, We would absolutely love to continue expanding and growing the scope of the show. And the best way to support us is to drop us a like, drop us a rating, preferably a five-star rating. In fact, I'll go ahead and say, just forget any rating other than a five-star rating. Uh, if you wish to rate us any lower than five stars, just, just get, get, forget about it. Just, just don't, just don't. Just, just maybe go f- yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um. I mean, yeah. I, I tend to hold back at telling our listeners to go f- themselves, but uh, um. You know, but maybe in that situation, it might be pretty apt. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> four star reviews only hurt the podcast, so uh, please, please keep five star reviews. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this show uh, is worth your time. Without the way, uh, thank you everyone, uh, genuinely from the bottom of our hearts for listening so far. Uh, thank you for all of your support. It really does mean the world to us. And with all of that said, we'll see you guys next week. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.